You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers John 3, 22 through 36. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Cole, for reading our text. And thank you to all of you for being here today. It takes, of course, an extra amount of effort to be here on such a cold day and a snowy day. And thank you to a couple of our youth, um, Sean and Travis, who shoveled sidewalks for us. And then this morning, they roped in a few more kids who shoveled out some parking spots. So if you were here about, I don't know, 8.45 or 9 o'clock, you would have seen a crew of kids out there um, doing all the shoveling while all the parents and adults were inside staying nice and warm. So it was a perfect, um, perfect recipe, great setup there. So thank you to you guys, though, who did all that work and all of you for being here. Uh, we're in our series today on the Gospel of John. Uh, The series we're calling Believe, we've been saying this is a book, the book of John, that is all about believing in Jesus, what it means to believe in Jesus, the benefits of believing in Jesus, how we come to believe in Jesus, and so on. And our text today here in the second half of John chapter 3, these verses teach us about some of the blessings that we receive when we believe in Jesus. When we believe in him, when we make Jesus the center of our lives, so that, as as this text says, so that he increases while we decrease, then by faith in Jesus, we receive his good gifts, his blessings, and, and especially today, we'll talk about the good gift of joy among his other gifts. And so the question for us to think about this morning is, do you have joy? Do you have joy? And here in our text, we'll see the abundance of joy that comes when we believe in Jesus, that we're filled up with joy to the brim, a fullness of joy when Jesus is at the center of our lives. So that's the question for us. Do you have joy? So here's our outline for today uh, up on the screen here and then also in your bulletin again, if you want to pull that page out, follow along, take notes. Uh, Three things that we receive from Jesus. First, that he brings us joy, and that'll be kind of the main thing we'll talk about. But then second, also that he makes God known to us. And then third, that he gives us life. And all those things work together for our joy. So first, that Jesus brings us joy. And here we're especially looking at verses 22 through 30. So in verse 22, we find kind of the setting for this conversation that's going to happen. Jesus and his disciples, they're out in the countryside People are listening to their message, they're hearing what uh, Jesus is saying, and they're coming to Jesus and being baptized by Jesus and his disciples. And at the same time, verse 23 tells us John the Baptist was also out in the countryside nearby, and he is baptizing people too. So they're both preaching, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent of your sins, baptizing people. And in verse 25... John's disciples, these are the followers of John who have been with him and learning from him. John's disciples get into a discussion with another Jew. We're told in verse 25, they're discussing purification. And we're not told exactly what this discussion was all about, but we can kind of guess that probably they were talking about in the Old Testament some of the laws about purification for the Jewish people where They're supposed to go into the temple and use water to go through some rituals of cleansing and so on. And probably talking about that and looking at baptism. How how does that work with baptism and getting baptized in water and so on? 
So there's some kind of discussion going on, and they decide, well, let's go to John and ask our questions. But here's kind of what's interesting. When they come to John, they actually ask a completely different question, or actually not even a question, they present a completely different concern. Not about purification, but their concern that they bring to John in verse 26 is about Jesus, that Jesus is stealing people away from John the Baptist. So in verse 26, they say, hey, hey, John, you know you're not the only one out here in the wilderness baptizing, right? You've got competition, John. Look, Jesus is baptizing, and it, and it seems that everybody, people are just kind of figuring out Jesus is like the preferable dude out here. People are going to Jesus and leaving John to go and follow Jesus. And so John's crowd of people out here is getting smaller while Jesus' crowd is getting larger, and John's disciples are concerned. We're losing the battle of the baptizers, they think. And so John's response to his own disciples, to this concern, is his response is very important. In verses 27 through 30, this is where John responds, and these are very important verses in the, in the real heart of our passage, because in John's response, he describes how he sees himself, how John sees himself in relation to Jesus and how his relation to Jesus brings him fullness of joy. Okay, so here's how this works. Here's what John says in verse 27. Look at verse 27. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So he starts with kind of a, a general principle. What do any of us have unless it came from God in heaven to us? That's a broad statement that is true. But as we keep reading, we learn that John is speaking specifically here about his role, about his identity, who I am, the job that I have been given, John is saying, has been given to me from God. My place in the world is a gift from God. And so he goes on in verse 28 to talk about who he is then in relation to Christ. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So remember, John says, God promised the Christ would come, the one who would be king, but I am not the Christ. I've come before the Christ to prepare the way for him but I am not the Christ. So who is John then? Who, who am I, John says? What role has John received from God? Well, now John goes on to use that imagery of the wedding like we talked about with the kids. So now we've got to envision a wedding with a bride and a bridegroom who are getting married. And, and in this picture, John says, the bridegroom has a friend, what we would call a groomsman or a best man, a friend who stands near him who hears the bridegroom and who rejoices greatly at the sound of the bridegroom's voice. So if you think of a wedding, if most weddings, hopefully all weddings, but most weddings, a wedding day, it's a day full of joy, isn't it? It's one of the most joyous occasions that we have in the world when we celebrate a wedding. And of course, the joy is centered on the bride and the bridegroom. It's their day. They're the ones who have all the joy. But it's joy also for everyone who loves the bride and the bridegroom, for the family 
and friends. And so the friend of the bridegroom, the groomsman, the best man, he's rejoicing. He rejoices as the day, the wedding day, goes the way that the bridegroom wants it to go. And in a sense, the more it goes the bridegroom's way, the more joy the bridegroom has, then the more joy the friend of the bridegroom has. And so John says in the end of verse 29, that is the kind of joy I have. My joy actually is complete, he says. I have fullness of joy. My cup is filled to the brim with joy because of the bridegroom. And then verse 30 says, John makes this great statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. John says, Jesus, he must become the bigger deal. It's his stage. It's his wedding, so to speak. This is his moment. It's about him, not about me. And that's how it's supposed to be, John says. And so that is great joy for me. So if you kind of step back and think about what's going on here and what we're learning from this, these disciples of John, they think or they presume that for John, his greatest joy would be when John himself is center stage. That John wants crowds of people for himself. That John wants success in his own work and preaching and baptizing. And the more successful John is and the more John increases at the center of it all, then the greater joy John will have. And so as John is fading now and people are leaving John, they assume, well, now John must be distressed. He must be losing out on his joy. But John says, no, that's not how it works. My greatest joy is not found in me being at the center. My greatest joy is found in Jesus. And the greater Jesus becomes, the more he increases, the greater is my joy. See, if you're thinking of a, of a best man, a groomsman at a wedding, the greatest joy for that groomsman is when everyone is looking at the bride and the groom and everything is going right for them and their center stage. This is how it works for John. This is how it should work for us. There is great joy for us in knowing Jesus. There's great joy in realizing who Jesus is and who we are in relation to Jesus. And the joy comes when we put Jesus at the center, where he increases and we decrease, where his will, his plan is at the center. It's his day. This is his show. And I am his friend, his servant, here to attend to him to make sure it goes his way. But often, if, you're, if you kind of are following this, often in, for us, we tend to think more like John's disciples than like John himself. We, we look for joy in the wrong places. We seek after joy in the wrong ways. There's a, a book I was reading a while back called Life Worth Living. And it's, it's not really a Christian book per se, but this book was written by some philosophers from a university, and they kind of taught this class and turned it into a book. And and they're asking the question, what is it that makes life worth living? 
And they have in there, they observe that many of us in our world, we live according to a philosophy that they call the Walgreens philosophy of life. Now, I don't remember this. Maybe some of you will, but apparently Walgreens, you know Walgreens like the drugstore, apparently they used to run an ad that said something like Walgreens exists at the corner of health and happiness. Does anybody remember that ad? Maybe I just didn't watch enough TV. You remember it? Only not very many of Well, that wasn't a very effective ad then if none of us remember it. Apparently that was some advertising strategy they had that Walgreens exists at the corner of health and happiness. And so anyway, in this book, they, they take that up and say, well, this is kind of like a philosophy of life almost that a lot of us live by health and happiness. That's what we want in life. Then in this book, they say, here's the problem, though. It's in how we pursue happiness because we are too simplistic in it. We simply ask, what will make me happy? And then we want to arrange the world around us according to our own happiness. We want other people to cooperate and to do things that will make me happy. We want things in the world to work on our time frame in our way, the way we want, all for our own happiness. They don't say it in this way in the book, but I suppose perhaps John the Baptist would say it this way, that really the way many of us want to live in life is as if every day is my wedding day. You know, on on my wedding day, I get to be like the focus for one day, like everybody attends to me. Everybody wants my happiness to be front and center. You know, and that, that maybe works for one day on our wedding day, but how can that work, or, or does that work? What if we live life and try to live life as if every day should be my wedding day? Every day should be a day when everything and everybody works for me and my happiness on my terms. You know, if we try to live like that, well, what's going to happen? Well, pretty quickly we realize Maybe, maybe the people in my world can tolerate me being the groom on center stage for one day, but day after day after day, my entire life, it turns out people don't really cooperate in that way, me and my happiness. And in fact, especially if they're living for themselves and their happiness and want me to cooperate with them. Relationships, friendships, they begin to sour if we live this way. And, and what about the world around us? It doesn't really arrange itself around my happiness, as it turns out. Happy for me today would have been 75 degrees and palm trees and sunshine. What happened to my happiness uh, this morning? Eventually, we get sick. Life gets hard. Money gets tight. If, if we put ourselves at the center and then want to arrange the world around my happiness, when we do that, often the result, and this is what this book is saying, the less happy we become. But now John says, here's a path to true and full joy, abundant joy. It's when we realize that the place, my place in this world has been given to me from God in heaven. He has given me my place and my role. And it turns out he has not made you or me the Christ. All of us could say with John, I am not the Christ. That role belongs to Jesus alone. He is the bridegroom, and there's only one bridegroom in this picture. What does that make us? We are his friends, 
his groomsmen, his bridesmaids. And like good groomsmen and bridesmaids, our only concern ought to be that things go the way the groom wants them to go. Jesus, if I am a good groomsman, a proper kind of groomsman, then so long as the groom is happy, I am happy. My greatest joy is when things are going his way, when his will is being done, when he has glory, when he is having things the way he wants them. He is the source of my joy. And so this is why John says, when Jesus, the more Jesus increases in my life, the more I decrease, then the more my joy increases. So there's something kind of ironic or almost upside down about this, that in order for my joy to increase, I must decrease. The less I live for myself and for my own happiness, the more I live for Jesus and center my life around him, the more joy and happiness I actually find. Isn't that interesting? That's what John is saying here. This is the joy John the Baptist is experiencing. And this is why John the Baptist can do something counterintuitive. This is why he can rejoice even while people are leaving him, walking away from him in his ministry because they're going to follow Jesus. And John says that's exactly the way it should be. And so that's the main point of this passage and of our message that when Jesus increases in our lives and we decrease, then our joy increases. But there's a little more explanation in this passage. It digs a little bit deeper to kind of show us a couple of reasons. So why would we want Jesus to be at the center of our lives and how does he bring us joy? And so our next two points kind of fill in a couple of those gaps here. Why does Jesus increasing and us decreasing bring us joy? Well, our second point is because Jesus makes God known to us. And this is where the passage goes next in verses 31 and 30 through 34. This is our second point now. Jesus, not only does he give us joy, Jesus makes God known to us. Verses 31 through 34. So beginning in verse 31, John the Baptist is done speaking. Now the apostle John, he's writing this gospel, this book, and now he says, well, here's a little further explanation for you about what John the Baptist meant by all of this. And in verses 31 through 34, he says, here's one thing, one additional thing that, that makes Jesus different than John the Baptist, that makes Jesus greater than John the Baptist, greater than all of us. One additional reason why we should put Jesus at the center so he increases in how this works. He says, because Jesus came down from heaven and he makes God known to us in a far greater way than anyone else ever can or does. So in verse 31, he says, he, this is verse 31, he who comes from a heaven, or he who comes from above, is above all. In other words, Jesus, when he comes down from heaven, he is greater than anyone else. He goes on in verse 31, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's saying, look, lots of people talk about things on earth. And some people on earth even have messages from God and can make God known in various ways. 
But there's only one person who comes from heaven who's actually seen and heard God himself in heaven. It's the Son of God who took on flesh and became human, who makes God known firsthand. If you think back through the Bible, God has revealed himself in lots of ways through prophets like Moses or Elijah, even through John the Baptist. But there's no one else who was in heaven with God, seeing, hearing, knowing God, being the Son of God, who then came to earth and made God known. That's only Jesus. So verse 34 says, He whom God has sent utters the words of God. He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus, when he speaks, he's speaking the very words of God. And we don't have time to really get into the ins and outs of this, but this little phrase in here, he also gives the Holy Spirit abundantly to us. It's the Holy Spirit who fills our lives, gives us life, gives us love, joy, peace, and so on, makes us more and more like Jesus. And the bottom line in here is that there's no one like Jesus. There's no one who makes God known like Jesus does. Look around in the world, look at other prophets, none of them are like Jesus. Look at other religions, none of them make God known like Jesus does. And so when John the Baptist says, well, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, of course everyone should go to Jesus. He's the bridegroom. What is he saying? In that picture, he's saying Jesus is the one who came from heaven, who makes God known, who speaks the very words of God. So yes, he should increase. And yes, I rejoice when he increases because we know God through him. And so the more Jesus increases, the more we center our lives around him, the more we know God through him. And of course that leads us to increasing joy. And then our third point, not only does Jesus give us joy and make God known to us, but he also gives us life. And here we're looking at the last couple of verses, verses 35 and 36. Okay, so this is our third and final point. Jesus gives us life. Verse 35, here's what it says. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then look at verse 36 and see if this sounds a little familiar. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now that final verse, maybe it sounds a little familiar. It might sound to you a little bit like John 3.16. Anybody kind of catch a little bit of John 3.16 in there? About believing or not believing, having life or perishing. It goes back to John 3.16. They hear Jesus, this reminder, again, that Jesus is the one who gives us eternal life, eternal life today and forever. But if we don't believe in Jesus, don't trust in him, then there's consequences. God's wrath remains upon us and we will perish because of our sins. And so this whole chapter comes back full circle here at the very end with this statement about believing Jesus, having life in him. And again, this is part of that undergirding. Why do we have joy when Jesus is at the center well, if we believe in Jesus, we've received life. We have the hope of eternal life. We know we will one day be raised from the dead to live with Jesus forever in his kingdom. If everything else falls apart in life, 
if we have nothing else in life but this one gift from Jesus of eternal life and the hope of eternal life, well, isn't that alone reason enough to have joy even in the midst of hardship? If we had nothing else but that, this is at the very core, the very foundation of our joy. And so we can put all these pieces together and say, well, of course John the Baptist would rejoice. Of course he would be happy to see Jesus increasing and people going to Jesus and believing in Jesus. This is a good thing. It brings me great joy, John says, to see Jesus in his proper place, the bridegroom, the center of attention, everyone looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus in faith, because Jesus has made God known. Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is the source of joy. And so the question today that we began with, we come back to that question again today, do you have this kind of joy? Joy where, that is abundant, that fills you up to the brim. If we think back over John chapter 3, this is kind of wrapping up and bringing the whole chapter to a conclusion. If you remember John chapter 3, not everyone in this chapter has this kind of joy, at least at this time. Do you remember where chapter 3 began? Who was the main character at the beginning of chapter 3? This guy, Nicodemus. Remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? And Nicodemus, in his conversation, he wasn't quite sure what to make of Jesus. Doesn't yet believe in Jesus at this time, though it seems like eventually Nicodemus will. But at this point in time, and Nicodemus in his own world, Nicodemus is great. And Jesus is lesser. But Nicodemus is trying to figure this out. As far as we can tell, Nicodemus in some way was pursuing happiness in that Walgreens kind of way. He, if you remember Nicodemus, he had climbed the ladder. Here's a religious leader, a political leader. He has wealth. He has status in the world. As much as anybody in his day, the world around Nicodemus had arranged itself to fit his own happiness. And yet, for Nicodemus, who has all the pieces that we think would make a person happy in his world, was Nicodemus happy? Was he filled up with joy and rejoicing? And it appears that actually Nicodemus was troubled. He has doubts. Is this really all there is? Have I, have I really got it figured out? Isn't there something more God wants from me or has for me? And he's looking at Jesus and thinking, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe, maybe there's something more to Jesus, something I still need to put together. <clears throat> so Nicodemus, he sneaks his way to Jesus. And if you remember that conversation, he hears Jesus talking about being born again, starting over, having a new kind of spiritual life that comes only by believing in Jesus. And Nicodemus is processing all of this. And we're not told in chapter 3, what was the outcome for Nicodemus? We can kind of get hints later in the book that he came to faith and believed. But instead, in chapter 3, the focus shifts from Nicodemus back over to John the Baptist and gives us John the Baptist as an example. Here is what happens when you do believe in Jesus. 
When you let Jesus become greater and you become less, when Jesus takes center stage in your life, and instead of trying to arrange everything in the world around yourself, you now arrange your life around Jesus at the center. Here's what happens when you stop living as if every day is my wedding day and start living as if everything is Jesus' wedding day. He is the bridegroom. We are serving him, living to do his will. And John the Baptist gives us this example. This then floods our lives with joy. And it's so counterintuitive, so upside down, so backward, that when we make ourselves lesser and Jesus greater, then we have joy. And it's not because our lives suddenly become easier, as if we no longer have hardship. In fact, Christians experience the same hardships everyone else does in the world. As Christians, we can go bankrupt. We can lose our jobs. We get sick. Our loved ones die. Hardships come upon us just like everyone else. I may be a Christian, but it's no warmer on my back porch than it is on anyone else's back porch today. We all suffer hardships. And plus, as Christians, you could make the case that we have even more hardships than others. We're called to surrender everything to Jesus. We have the hardships of giving away our money through tithes and offerings or helping the poor, being generous. We give away our time. We're called to do hard things as Christians, sometimes even to suffer persecution for his name's sake. And yet we have this abundant joy. It's not because life is easier that we have joy. It's because life, our lives are finally arranged the way they were always supposed to be, with Jesus at the center, him as the groom, his wedding day, us, his servants. And so I don't need the world to work for me in order for me to be happy. I simply need to know that things are working for Jesus that he is Lord, that he is king, that his plans are being fulfilled, whatever they are, even when things are hard in my life, and I can have joy. This is why we have passages like James 1, 2, consider it pure joy when we face trials of any kind, because Jesus is at work in our trials and at work in us. This is why Christians throughout history have such joy even when they suffer persecution, even when we're losing everything for the sake of Jesus, we have abundant and eternal joy. Apart from Jesus, there is no other source of joy like this in the world. Even the happiest person in the world, apart from Christ, does not have this kind of joy that we're talking about. A few years back, I was talking with a friend. He's an accountant, and in his accounting practice, he's, he's pretty successful as an accountant, but he works with some of the wealthiest people in the world. So he has, he has clients who are mega millionaires. I don't know what that means, but lots of millions of dollars that they have accumulated, even billionaires, some of the most successful people in the world. And, and often, especially if we, if we think, well, if we're living with me at the center, everything's supposed to work for my happiness, then we look at someone like that and we say, well, well, this must be a person who's really happy. Here's a person who doesn't have a care or concern in the world 
They, they can put their feet up and live life without any worries and have all the joy. But in reality, this friend of mine who's an accountant, he said, these, these wealthy people, they're actually not happy. Because it turns out that once you have done all that hard work of making all of that money, then those people become very worried and anxious about losing it. Because their happiness is often bound up in their wealth. And where, if you, I'd never really thought about this before. It's not really a problem I have. But if you have this kind of wealth, where are you going to put it to ensure that you never lose it? You can buy stocks and invest in the stock market, but it can crash. You can buy real estate, but the real estate market can crash. Do you buy bars of gold? Those can lose their value or someone can steal them. And so they're worried and anxious and afraid of losing what they've gained. And the point being, in whatever way we seek happiness in the world, whatever we try to do to make ourselves happy, if we are at the center trying to arrange the world around us to make us happy, it will fail. We won't get there. There's only one source of joy, and that's Jesus. And when we learn to make Jesus greater, to increase him, to put him at the center of our lives, he's the groom, not me. I'm the groomsman, his friend, his servant, with my life arranged around him, believing him, following him, serving him, knowing God through him, then and only then we find joy. He must increase. I must decrease. And so may we all know this fullness of joy as in each of our lives, this is exactly what happens for us, that Jesus increases and we decrease. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.